0: Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much, so much for uh, joining us today. I am um, here with my wonderful co host today, Paul Danchek, and he's going to take over from here.
1: Thanks, Martine. Uh, super excited to have Richard Figueroa, the Deputy Cabinet Secretary for the California's Governor's Office. Richard, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So, uh, Martine and I were uh, scheming behind the scenes. We'd like to get some insights to learn more about you and how your career has uh, evolved over time, and then start geeking out on this leadership space uh, within public service, and maybe get into some policy questions around uh, the healthcare system within California. Sound like a good place to start? Sure, go go for it. Uh, where you are now as a Deputy Cabinet Secretary isn't where your career started. Uh, tell me, go way back, tell me about your family life. Where'd you grow up? What was it like growing up? Sure. Um... So,
2: um, I grew up in Oakland and for those of you that are familiar with Oakland, I grew up in East Oakland, um, kind of at the outer edges of the Fruitvale district, which is the traditional heart of the Latino community. Um, in, in, in Oakland, um, oldest of nine children. Um, uh, my mom was for many years, a stay at home mom, as you might imagine, given the nine kids and a number of us were just like a year, a year and a half apart. And then my dad was uh, first in the army. Um, He was part of the U.S. occupation forces of Japan and then fought in Korea uh, during the Korean conflict and then came back and um, became a steel worker. And so he worked at a place called American Can Company um, for, gosh, 40 years, 45 years. Um, So so it was a traditional kind of, of, you know, kind of working class, you know, but for them, you know, pretty large family, you know, I, I, I had always had a I had a shirt that I was always kind of proud of growing up. It said um, it said Mexican uh, Catholic Democrat Raider fan. <clears throat> and so and so that was the you know, that was kind of a lot of what we did. A lot of it was, you know, around around church, um, you know, obviously rooting for our favorite, you know, sports teams. Um, you know, I was always, um, uh, you know, some of it's obviously, you know, part of our heritage and doing heritage based heritage based activities. And then, you um, I was always personally interested in politics. My dad was a shop steward, and he used to, you know, get involved in struggles for workers' rights, obviously as, as, as you know, trying to be a leader in the union. Um, and then as part of the union movement, would participate in in kind of the large scale political rallies that that used to occur as well. So I was always kind of, always had a little bit of an interest in, in, in that part of the world.
1: What was it like growing up with eight siblings?
2: um you know you always were rocking and rolling as you know as the oldest as the there's seven boys and two girls and i was the oldest and so at a pretty young age i learned how to feed children and change diapers and do babysitting and you know laundry and all kinds of stuff like that so we were a pretty rambunctious crowd you know i i when i went to college um you know some of the kids were either still in the process of being born or or were still pretty young. Um, so I, I saw some of the younger ones less than I did some of the, the older ones. But certainly it was a pretty you know we had a you know all of our socks were color coded so we wouldn't you know get them all mixed up and and um, it was a you know pretty pretty raucous bunch at the dinner table as you might imagine for those for those that weren't constantly in the high chair. There's always someone in the hot seat. <clears throat> there were there was there was somebody Always in the high chair, the entire time. Uh, Even when I even when I went to college, there was still the youngest was still in the high chair. So there was never any. There were still lots of diapers around, even when I went to college, and high chairs and little baby spoons and little baby cups and stuff like that. So, but you know, we always we always we got along. There's lots of game nights, and you know, when you when you have that many children, you know, you're less likely to go to like. You know, big vacations that cost a lot of money. You kind of make your own fun, and so we did lots of you know trips to the park and trips to the zoo, and just kind of a lot of times just kind of made made our own fun. Obviously, it wasn't always fun for my parents because with that many kids, there was always one or two or three agitating against another one or two or three. Um, you know, and that's just kind of that's just kind of normal normal sibling stuff. What's the worst trouble you got into as a kid? Uh, I don't really know. I think. Um, one night I came, I went to a high school basketball game and there was something, when I got home, my parents were busy really doing something in the other room. And so I went to bed and I didn't find out till like one or two in the morning that they had like called the school, called the police department, whatever. And I was, I was asleep upstairs the whole time and never even knew any of that was going on. So I think I got in a bunch of trouble. For, but again, I wasn't like, you know, I didn't do anything bad, but I I didn't know that they didn't know I was home, and so that that you know that was kind of freaking them out quite a bit. So that's probably the, you know, the I probably got in a bit of trouble for that one.
1: Did it freak them out or did it freak you out?
2: <clears throat> well, it freaked them out first, and it freaked me out that they got freaked out. So, but yeah, that that was a you know, and you know, I mean, like any urban area when you're out you know, very late and you don't come home and they can't visit before, the, you know, before the time of cell phones or anything like that, you know, you, you, you worry a lot, so.
1: I can totally understand that. Uh, you gave this great visual of a t-shirt that you used to have that had Mexican, Catholic, Raiders. A de- Democrat and Raider fan. And
2: it, oh, had, it, was, it, was green. it was green, it had four boxes, you know, and, and they're all kind of, they're all checked.
0: Cause oh. it, was kind
2: of, it was kind of that way you know, kind of in my neighborhood, it was very, um, you know, the, the Latinos there were were Catholic, they're all big families, Demo- you know, Democrat, mostly blue-collar union, and and, and heavy Raider fans. We we well, lived kind of in, in the foothills right above the Oakland Coliseum, so for my back bedroom, you could actually, we actually could see people walking into the third deck, that's how close we were, and so when the Oaks used to, for the you know, and we were A's fans too, and when they would um, you know, we knew when they were playing at home, every time they hit a home run, there'd be fireworks. There were fireworks almost every night in our neighborhood. And, um, you know, many, many, um, many happy memories around, you know, it could have been, it could have been the Warriors. It could have been the A's. It could have been the Raiders. We had a, a, a professional hockey team for a while. We had a soccer team called the Stompers. So we were always, you know, we were close enough to walk to the Coliseum, although we wouldn't do that very often because some of the neighborhoods, real rural around right the corner, were, were, you know, um uh, a little less safe than where we grew up but we a lot of, a lot of our world also revolved around the oca coliseum
1: and and all the various sporting events and things like that that we we're able to go to was it the nine of you was well, that... the 11 of you that went who went to the games
2: well uh, my 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 dad would take us or i would i would go i mean there are probably always three or four of us that would go um I think most of us would go when they had the free giveaways. Whether well, there are seven seven boys, and you know, <clears throat> so they would have bat day, um, cap day, you know, things like that. Some of the giveaway days we would tend to get more, but all the tickets were half off on Monday nights, and so we used to go sit in the bleachers. You know, they're, they're for like a buck or something like that, and we'd go with neighbors or things. Hey, who wants to go to the game? So we, we we used to spend a lot of time at the ballpark. My, my sisters were interested too, but they were also younger. Um, um, and so they may have gone more when I was like in college or or a little later on and things like that. But it was the the three oldest boys, my sister would go, the oldest girl, and then there was, um, uh, then there's two more boys. And so when I was there, when they were old enough, it was mostly the boys that went.
1: Did that carry across, I mean, your love for sports and watching sports, did that carry across to you playing?
2: Did it carry across to what?
1: I'm sorry, Paul. For you playing sports, did you play? Oh
2: no, I was never that. I was never. I was never that good at, at at sports. I was much more into the into books and and newspaper and journalism and things like that. So, my my high school was very small. They also had a pretty limited number of sports. But um, um, but for example, David's guy named Dave Stewart. Um, he ended. He was later in a famous Oakland ace pitcher. Was a year ahead of me, in high school. Strangely enough, me and my brothers, um, we weren't very big. Um, we were all pretty thin and smaller. And so, I was actually the head of the chain gang at the football games. You know, the down markers um, uh, marking the the marking where the ball was. You know, between the between the, the ten yard lines and things like that. So, I contributed in my in my own way um, by by being the head. And back and back then, they were real chains between the 10 yard markers real chains and there was a thick chain and you'd be very very careful because the players were off the field half you know half the time if you weren't careful they'd have sprawled on the ground because they tripped over the chain so back then it was it was like real chains and stuff back in the day um, real cleats real chalk it was just it was you know di- different time do you have a favorite memory doing that job um just being when when it rained it was miserable. <laughs> It was just miserable because you, you know, you had to wear um a little you didn't really get to like wear a poncho, you had to be seen and stuff like that. I just remember it was interesting because you were so close to the game um all the time, but you know, you were also just really busy. We had a little a little clip that you used to put on exactly where the ball was as part of the chain when you measured. Um and you know, we we never we never put the ball down on the ground, as always a referee, but you knew that you're your your classmates were kind of glowering at you, uh, based on the spot of the ball, and if you didn't, you know, if you pulled the pulled the chain too tight, oh my God, you missed it by a quarter inch or something. So, that was that was always a little bit a little bit intimidating. But you were doing, you know, you were doing your job, whatever that was.
1: Oh, recognize whenever you're in high school, your jobs can change pretty fast. How long did you do that job?
2: I want to say, I want to say, I did it three years. <laughs> Maybe even maybe I maybe have done it even, I mean I may have done it all four years I was there.
1: What kept you doing it?
2: Um, I mean, I was I like I said I wasn't very athletic, so it was my way to contribute. It's something fun to do on a Saturday afternoon. You know, you're, I like I enjoyed the atmosphere and the crowds. And again, you were around your you're around your classmates, although you had a little bit, a little bit less of a traditional role.
1: Where'd you go after high school?
2: I went to UC Davis. <laughs> Um, I was very interested in weather and atmospheric science in high school, and um, I went to UC Davis and was an atmospheric science major for maybe maybe two years or so. Um, I soon realized it was actually fi- a, more like a physics major kind of thing, and I just didn't I didn't enjoy it enjoyed it as much. At the same time, I I had been re- I was very active in like student activities, um, and. Um, and, and student government and stuff like that. So I just started kind of slowly drifting away from atmospheric science and and kind of end up going into sociology, uh, so, you know, sociology slash social welfare. And that and that ended up being my major at UC Davis.
1: I mean, you shared earlier how your dad was a shop steward and you, you used to go to rallies. <laughs> oh, I was
2: I was always interested in politics. Martin's might not Martin is probably not old enough, but even in like high school. I used to study all the propositions and ballot initiatives and things like that. And my parents just, just you know, I was not old enough to vote, but my parents would, on occasion, ask me, What do you think of this? And I was pretty well studied and well read on those things. I just, I was just naturally interested in politics and the working of politics and, you know, the kind of um, policies that, that um, the legislature or the people through the initiative process were, were putting forth. I just, it was just a natural interest of mine for whatever reason.
1: Nice. So when you're in uh, UC Davis, part of the Aggies, you went to student government then or whether. Um, of...
2: I was, I was, um, I was, um, yeah, I did, I did different things in like student government ish. I was, I was the appointed chair of the Club Finance Council, which basically gave out, you know, student funds to clubs and organizations. So I did that. I was a president of the Third World Coalition for a couple of years which was the coalition of all the ethnic student organizations um, on campus. And so, um, you know, as, as part of that, you know, you had the uh, Asian Pacific Islanders and the Filipinos and and different Latino clubs, the African-American, Native American. So I was kind of the, the president of the Third World Coalition. And in, in that space, you know, we organized... Demonstrations. This so when I was there it was during the time of the Baki, the the the, the Baki decision and the Baki um, issue, which was um, a court case that surrounded the ability of universities to employ affirmative action to achieve certain goals. And so it was a pretty raucous time on campus around around what's called the Baki decision. But so I used to help organize you know, um, meetings with campus administrators about particular issues that maybe the ethnic minority students on campus would face. Um, a time, you know, would help organize um, demonstrations. Um, we also endorsed candidates um, for, for student government and things like that. And so we, I would lead uh, interviews of, of persons that were seeking positions either, and wanted to be endorsed either for like student body president or vice president or student body council things like that so um, um i was active on the club side <clears throat> through the club finance council and then active i was also a peer advisor counselor i did other things i was a resident advisor for two years in the dormitories so i was very active i was very active on on, on campus and student clubs as well as in the residence halls
1: i can see how your major shift or could shift uh based on where your interest for the student governments went
2: I was I was a very busy boy at UC Davis. And, w- and when I started at Davis, I mean, you know, um, it was quite a culture shock going from a almost completely ethnic neighborhood and almost completely ethnic high school to UC Davis, which at the time was still kind of growing out of its UC Berkeley Ag Campus affiliation. And there were maybe like 13 or 14,000 students when I started. Um, most of the ethnic minority students lived on just a couple of the dorm floors, mostly because it was a more mutually supportive environment than, than maybe just being on other dorms that, you know, where people just were, they just weren't used to living in that kind of environment. Um, so, but by the time I graduated, it was 23,000 and of course now it's more like 40,000. So it really just grew tremendously during the time became much more, much larger campus. So much more multi-ethnic. the the course the, the the number of courses and majors really expanded. When, when I was there, you couldn't you couldn't even minor um, in anything. Uh, you couldn't cross cross college major. You pretty much were in the. I was in the College of Ag, Agricultural and Environmental Sciences, and then I moved to Letters and Sciences. You pretty much were in the college that you're in, and that's the kind of way you stayed. It's it's just so much um, younger persons these days have so much more opportunity, they could you know, major across college, they could also minor, they could double major. So when I was in school, as I'm older, when I was in school, the Vietnam War um, limits on units was still in place. And they didn't want students to stay at the UC five, six years to keep out of the war. <clears throat> so they put a unit cap on people. And that unit cap, I started in 76, the Vietnam War unit cap was still on in 76. So, um, if you, you know, you could graduate at 180, if you had, if you, if, if you wanted to go over 196, which is less than a year, you know, like into a fifth year or something, you had to petition and they were pretty rigorous. So again, it was a very different, it was a very different time. They wanted you in and out in four years, four and a half years, um, because people were still staying in when, um, people were still staying in, um, like when I was a freshman, the juniors and seniors were still affected and still subject to the draft and things like that. So it's just a different time.
1: Yeah, I, was, I wasn't even thinking about the impact of the Vietnam War on your college days. Uh, oh, yeah. When, when, I,
2: when I was a freshman, um, one day I went on the main quad. Everybody was wearing black and had black flags. And I was like, what is this? And it turned out it was the anniversary of the Kent State Student Massacre and so the 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 juniors and seniors were there during that time during when when those students were were killed on that campus and so that was really you know that was a very very um piercing issue for them and, I, and so when i was there you know people were still um you know there still was an annual they called the whole earth festival it was still the hippie times and and um you know we knew that when the whole earth festival happened that three or four months later there'd be lots of marijuana plants on the quad because people would you know you know people would plant them and just to mess up the university's quad and all this kind of stuff but it was still it was just uh, again it was it was the echoes of the vietnam war when i started when i even when i was in high school i remember sitting down with my mom um listening to them um do the lottery for for the draft i was still in high school the draft was still active when i was in high school and I was sitting out. I think my birthday, which is in November, ended up being like pulled like 180th or 200th. So I didn't think they'd ever get to me in the draft. But again, it was a different time. Lots lots of echoes of the Vietnam War when I when I was in,
1: in college still. Yeah, for sure. How did that influence you after you graduated? Um, you know, I'd say
2: my dad being in the Army, Influenced me more. He, um, you know, uh, the occupation for the U.S. occupation forces in Japan wasn't wasn't that horrible for our American um, GIs, but you know, his experience in Korea was really tough. You know, it was never really a declared war; it was always the Korean conflict. Um, you know, the weather, the the snow. And the marches in the snow and the kind of the back and forth, if you know, the history of the Korean war, the back and forth of the fighting up and down the peninsula was pretty brutal. Um, and, you know, he would never, and Martin knows this too. He would never talk about, you know, when you're a kid, you ask your parents sometimes pretty stupid questions like, did you kill somebody? You know, they, you know, it's innocent to you because you don't really know you have no, no reference for it, no context for it. You know, you grew up watching the, the, the store um, um, you, you, end up watching programs like combat or, you know, there's, there's lots of like uh, shows on about war and things like that. And sometimes you ask your parents stupid questions. And so, but my dad would never really talk about his war experience. We, we just found out later either through pictures or talking about him. It was a pretty brutal experience. So I, I just always, um, you know, had a pretty good understanding, at least, particularly even from a young age about how brutal war could be just from what we were able to glean from my my dad and and just kind of um, doing more of my own history and research of the Korean the Korean conflict.
1: I mean, you talked a lot about your dad. You know, in this case, around his military experience prior to that, his work as a shop steward and um, working in the in the plant. What was the best piece of advice you ever received from him?
2: Boy, uh, I don't. I mean. I guess, you know, he had a very, very strong work ethic and, and he always believed you work until the work gets done. Martin used to hear this too. Um, you know, even though he would work, you know, he, he was, he'd always take overtime shifts or whatever, cause you get, you know, time and a half or, you know, double pay or things like that. Um, he also helped put us through Catholic school. We went through Catholic grammar school and Catholic high school. And went to we he even though we lived six houses or eight houses away from the high school that he went to was a public school right down the street, um, but he always wanted us to have a better education. And so he, you know, he was always about you work until the work gets done. Um, he would come home from work and then go work at bingo, or or some other thing at the school to help put us through school. And so I think what I, the thing I took away maybe was. You know maybe most it wasn't necessarily a a word or or, um or phrase it's just mostly i think it's just his his work ethic and and so my we've all kind of the whole family operates the same way um you know my dad was a pretty tireless worker my mom was too and so i think all all of us have kind of you know fallen into that same the same footsteps or have that, that pretty much that same philosophy
1: so I imagine that's really shaped how you approach so your professional life of going in with, you know, both feet and dedicated to the work that you're doing. Yep. Uh, how did you get from you know, leaving college to where you are today?
2: Yeah. So um, again, yeah, I graduated from UCLA. I went. I got an MBA from. I, I graduated from Davis undergrad in sociology. I went to UCLA to get a master's, mostly because um, by by that time in the very early '80s the kind of the sixties revolution and activism was kind of moving into the Reagan years. And so I kind of wanted to see, um, you know, I could have gone to be a social worker or something like that, but I, I wanted to kind of see how the business side of things worked as well and see if there's a way to combine, you know, kind of my interest in, in, um, uh, more, um, Either political activism or or social services could be married some way with some kind of business acumen, and so I went to UCLA. Um, I got my MBA down there, and when I was there, I interviewed with the Legislative Analyst Office, which does nonpartisan fiscal or budget analysis for the legislature. And so for me, it was it was working in government, but applying kind of you know the potential to apply some business acumen um or you know how to make things work effectively and efficiently but in government and then when i went to so i got that job in legislative analyst office but because i was interested in kind of more social programs i immediately went was assigned to work on the medical program so i was i was it was a good fit for me because it was still a socially oriented um, program i was analyzing on behalf of the legislature um, but making recommendations to make the program effective and efficient, you know, for taxpayers. So for me, it was a good a good mix of my interest in social programs, but applying kind of my educational background to it, if that makes sense.
1: So uh, Medi-Cal's gonna come up in our conversation a little bit later as we're starting to geek out on the policy side. Now for those that aren't familiar with Medi-Cal, how would you describe what it is? Uh, yeah, so,
2: so Medi-Cal is, is a federal program that's known as Medicaid. We call it Medi-Cal because California likes to have its own names for everything. It's basically a program where lower-income individuals who don't otherwise have coverage can gain um, a set, you know, enroll in a set of comprehensive benefits, um, everything from doctor visits all the way to long-term care. So, again, it's 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 California's largest social services program. Enrolls about 14 million people, you know, so it's it's you know, good 35 percent of the population, if not more receive their health benefits um, through Medi-Cal, and the federal government picks up about 50% of the cost. So it's a federal program, but there is a state share, and so the state picks up about 50% or so.
1: Is it fair to say that uh, throughout your professional career, Medi-Cal has been a part of it?
2: That Medi-Cal has been a big part of it?
1: Right, for the policy side of the work. It, ha-
2: it has, yeah. I've always, I've always. I've um, starting at the legislative analyst office, um, you know, working in different offices in the legislature, always on the health side, same thing in the governor's offices, always on the health side. Uh, it's always been a big part of, of, it's the largest state program that exists, even bigger than education, um, but it's always been a, a kind of a central theme of the work I've done. For a while, in during the new administration, I was even the, its director, I was director of healthcare services for five months while I was doing the other job too. So. Um, it's always been part of what I've been interested in. It's always I've always been very interested in, in healthcare and health coverage, uh, and so whatever job I've had, you know, health coverage generally, but Medi-Cal being the biggest piece of that, has always been a piece of what I've done.
1: Um, your career has bounced in a, a lot of different types of offices, some nonpartisan, some very partisan. What was a jump like from going from LAO, legislative analyst office, which is a nonpartisan office? to something that became partisan, both within a legislative context and then working for Yeah, been-
2: that's a good question. Co- so I went, I moved from the legislative analyst office to the Senate Budget Committee. And there you're working for the state Senate, but in more particularly, uh, whoever's in charge of the state Senate, which at that time was Democrats and still is. And so one of the reasons I did that is because when you're in the legislative analyst office, you're making uh, recommendations that are, you know, are partisan blind. It's just, you know, this is they say they need this much money to do something you're disagreeing based on they did the wrong estimate or you think it could be done more efficiently or more effectively or why don't you do it this way or here's your options legislature <clears throat> but a lot of times the legislature um at least during that time you know i would go and make a presentation before a, a budget subcommittee but there are people sitting next to them that were staff that i could tell you they're talking to them about what i was talking about and making a suggestion about what they should go along with what i was suggesting or we're helping craft an agenda for them. Um, and so I wanted to be kind of sitting up there for a while to see kind of how that was, different from me just talking to them and not understanding why they'd make the decision the way they'd make them. I could, I could guess why they're making the decision away, maybe politics or it affected someone's legislative district <clears throat> a certain way. I mean, I would never know, but that was a little bit frustrating about that position. And so um, I wanted to go sit up next to them and be a you know legislative staffer versus just kind of being making a nonpartisan argument in front of them um, or discussion in front of them. I wanted to be they're more they're more more on the decision making side and help you know help advise the legislators on decisions. So it seemed a logical thing to move from the making the presentation to if I could be part of the more more part of the decision making process. And so that's that's why I made the jump.
1: And then going from there into. Uh, working for some governors, then nonprofit, and now currently working for a governor. What's that experience like bouncing in and out of those highly political spaces? I know, mean, politics? yeah, I mean,
2: I, I've always been blessed. I've always had um, something interesting I've, I wanted to do after the, the job I had before, and always had um, either the kind of history or had worked with others in those different administrations where we knew each other and and thought I could, you know, do a good a good job for them again i have always been about trying to get very coverage for everybody and so my through line to your point earlier paul whether it be medi-cal or now it's called cover california or its predecessors has been about um, getting coverage to everybody and so i've always participated in different kinds of jobs or roles (coughs) excuse me where i thought i could contribute toward getting everybody coverage and so whether it been you know even during the even during the Governor P. Wilson time and then, you know, Governor Davis and Governor Schwarzenegger. I didn't work for Governor Brown, part two. Um, then I've been back with Governor Newsom. It's, it's my through line's always been Medi-Cal coverage, healthcare, um, trying to trying to get folks covered that that weren't covered because I believe that that healthcare is a fundamental right. And so it's, but you know, so many people haven't had it, so many millions over the years. And, you know, we've been chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. And, chipping away, and come 2014, we'll um have chipped away even more picking off another group of folks that don't have access to preventive services or comprehensive preventive services so um you know it's 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 always been with the goal in mind not just working for someone to work for them but working for someone with a particular purpose or end goal in mind. from my perspective i mean i can't speak to you know the persons that would hire me about you know they obviously Hardly I mean, because they want me to, do, you know, a pretty broad-based job, and you know, put in my hours for them, and give them good advice and things like that. That's that's fine, but I I always had a goal going into those jobs. I always had a particular purpose or a particular, you know, um, end goal in mind when I worked for them.
1: I mean, that's a huge goal to have, right? To get everyone covered. What shaped <clears throat> you come to that conclusion?
2: Well, I, I mean, you know, where I grew up, a lot of people didn't have health care. And, and, you know, even look at my parents and my, my, my um, parents were lucky that we had private insurance, you know, through, you know the steel workers had pretty good insurance um, at the time. And so, you know, we always had some place to go. But very early on, my parents believed in also the clinic movement. They used to bring us to the community clinic where we lived in Fruitvale, which is a community-based, um, with a community board, kind of thing. It used to be a free clinic, moved into a, a larger, what they call fairly qualified health center. And so I always noticed that people, you know, people are going there for free care. They didn't have coverage. And a lot of times it would come in in pretty bad shape. Um, and, and so that always made an impression um, on me, um, you know, even, even kind of growing up. And so, you know, as you grow up and you kind of like learn more and talk to more people, you realize that not really grew up with insurance. Not people, a lot of people don't have insurance. They even were going to college without insurance. Um, and then the kind of things that they had to do where I would just say, I go see the doctor and say, well, you know, I haven't seen the doctor in five years. Or I've never seen a dentist or, you know, I can't do this or I can't do that. Or, you know, I have to go to, I have to go to Mexico to get care or I have to go to Canada to buy prescription drugs or whatever. So, so again, you know, you're, you, you're, um, you know, once you kind of get out there and talk to other people, you realize it—it really is a, a big, huge issue. And when I saw just in my little community, you know, obviously grew to a larger public pol- public a public policy awareness on myself about you know what I could, how I could help. And so all wherever I've been, we've always chipped away. <clears throat> whether it would be whether it was a situation where you're trying to cover a new group of people, or just make it easier to get in, you know, reduce the barriers to get into coverage. You know, reduce the barriers so that people can stay in coverage versus getting you know, kicked out. Um, looking for new ways. You know, if a, if a particular governor would be like, I don't really want to expand Medi-Cal. Well, can we put some state dollars in to match with a person's dollars? You know, is there some kind of matching thing using the private sector we can do? So I always just kind of I tell people I'm in it for the species, you know, I, I wanna I wanna um uh, I, I wanna get so come January first, twenty fourteen, um, it looks like we'll pick off the last group of of individuals in this case it's undocumented adults that don't have access to a comprehensive set of benefits if they're low income in <clears throat> california would be the first state to do that but you know there's all kinds of issues either over the years we've had to, to encounter either because the federal government didn't want to pay for them or they're undocumented or there's barriers put up here or barriers put up here either to entrance or retaining people and so it's all been about over these years trying to give people access to a comprehensive set of benefits and once you once you you know and hopefully reduce the barriers so once they get in they're able to stay in and not lose it again so
1: no i mean that's really helpful i know i know that i know that was
2: a lot i know that i get that was a lot but you know
1: no i mean it's all helping create understanding and and i want to geek out a little bit and talk about this idea of health policy and what it looks like um your perspective on it but before diving into that space you know when you're like, just looking about those examples around you know how you saw others getting care and the FQhC and their relationship with FqhCs and um, other types of insurance etc is there one story that stands out that just keeps you motivated on really pushing forward towards this goal of getting everyone covered
2: I mean I think um, um, you know in, in I don't know if there's one I think you know there are they're, they're I used to be the Director of Eligibility Enrollment um, for what's called the Managed Medical Insurance Board, which is a predecessor. It was a program called Healthy Families, which is now part of Medi-Cal. Um, and taking those phone calls from families um, who were just desperate for healthcare and had all these horrible stories and things of, of, you know, their interaction with the healthcare delivery system, have to go in the emergency room, um, and my various roles in government. You get to meet a lot of people, right? People, people want to meet you. They want to bring in groups to meet you. They want people to relate their personal experiences to hopefully have the kind of impact that will will assist them in achieving their their you know policy goals. They hope you 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 know will listen to them and will agree with them. So I've just heard literally thousands of stories over the years. So I'm not sure there's any one you know. Um, you know, just want to make you cry, you know, make, just want to, just want to just, you know, can drive you to tears just because of the experiences that, that people have had. And it's really, a lot of it was really about, you know, the early days of even getting coverage for their kids, particularly if they're undocumented and the parents struggle, you know, with, with their children or related to their children. They don't even care about themselves. They weren't even worried about themselves. they're really about their kids and their teenagers and things like that. So it's, it's no surprise that when the legislature decided to expand coverage, it was first to children, even above the Medi-Cal level, and then undocumented children because, um, you know, it's that's um, because parents always kind of want to start there with their kids even, and start thinking about their kids and really think about themselves. So it's not really a, you know, there's no one story. It's just more like hundreds and thousands of stories.
0: Well, Rick, I'm going to go ahead and uh, segue off false questions. Him and I are, like you said, we're going to geek out and ask you some more specific questions because oh, I have. Okay. Um, how would how would you compare the quality of public medical services versus private, and then how do you deal with those uh, discrepancies? So, um, things evolved over time. Um,
2: you know. I mean, back in the old days, you used to have charity hospitals and things like that, which are like the place where, you know, people had to go and, and, you know, had lots of uh, different reputations and things like that. Um, uh, That moved into like public hospitals, public clinics. Only some counties had them, some didn't. Um, But starting in the 80s, um, we started having managed care plans, which are much more organized groups, uh, you know, organizations that... A specific contracts for providers to provide specific types of services and where you actually had like a primary care physician. <clears throat> so um, MediCal, which was kind of a earlier just kind of fee-for-service, you know, some people participated, some people didn't, move much into the more organized space. Um, and even for-profit companies, you know, for-profit insurers plus private or, or not-for-profit insurers. So a lot of the kind of networks and names you would see. In the private sector you started seeing in the public sector kaiser blue cross blue shield i mean there are lots of lots of iterations over the years of different names and conglomerations and names but um it's evolved over time and just just like the Medi-Cal population has increased you know it's almost like a population you can't ignore you know, if you're 35 40 percent of a population or more is in medicare or medicaid um and the public sector is paying for half of expenditures in the country you know, you know, a lot, a lot of the traditional insurers that may have been only private insurance or employer based are now in the public space as well. <clears throat> I think that over time, um, expectations have obviously increased, or 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 requirements for, you know, measuring data, measuring quality of care, those things that that. May have existed more in the private sector or are now in the public sector as well. Um, our state Medicaid program just re-procured its private commercial contracts. They were announced last week. And um, they're pretty rigorous in terms of the, the types of services and the expectations on those health health insurers. There it's healthcare itself has also changed tremendously. It used to be, you know, used to count um, know how many doctor visits you know a person had and how many vaccinations they have as things have have evolved particularly on the on the public side it's also now about what kind of linkages you have to homeless service providers and what kind of linkage you have to help people that are having food insufficiency and just a much broader range of links to supportive services that were never just even part of healthcare it's not like just going to a doctor and counting a widget you know it's also about what they're doing when they're there the kind of screenings they're going to get and the kind of linkages you make to other services that could help support them in their life because as we've learned your healthcare is is as much about or even less about your genetics and more about the other things that impact you where you live it could be your it could be the know the situation you're facing in your household it could be your housing it could be your food it could be your diet it could be lots of things what they call the social determinants of health and you know whether we like it or not we're we're finding out that that your your longevity in life is less about your genetic code and much more about your zip code so so if you look at you know in a city um, you might have two, three, five, eight year difference in lifespan and longevity in the city based on the zip code because of all the other things that are are pushing down on individuals in areas where they live um, than in other areas where they you know where they live. so so the healthcare delivery system is evolving along with our understanding about how what they call epigenetics work um, about how the different impacts that affect us as human beings in our in larger society impact us. So as we're having more learnings about what affects our health, our overall health and wellness, the healthcare delivery system is reflecting those new learnings in terms of the way they're brought into the the the, the clinicians office and the kind of things that that are now expected of them, much like the schools. Schools used to be reading, writing, and arithmetic, <clears throat> you know, that over time they've they've evolved into having other services there, including health services and linkages, supportive services, and now it's called community schools and things like that. So, you know, as we have learned about how to, what is the best way, Give a person in your office, what's the best way to impact them in their overall health? Same thing with school, kids are there all day. What's the best way to impact them in their overall health um, versus just seeing them for what they came there for? You know, I have a, I have a sore throat. Well, we, we want them to do a lot more now than just take or sore throat. You've gone there to learn about, you know, to take, you know, learning English, and and you want to, you want to make sure they learn their English and 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 math and things like that. But while they're there, you are able to impact their broader health by, you know, asking certain questions or having other services available for them as well.
0: So, what do you do to assure that there is kind of a parity between them, between the private oh, and the and the public I sector, mean, or or can you?
2: I mean, you know, that's a good question. I mean, parity. Um, I mean, we we are constantly working toward, I mean, not everybody in the private sector has what they need either. And so, you know, our overall um, goals are are to make sure that people have as ready access in terms of the kind of benefits and the services they have, the private insurance. Um, Medi-Cal is even broader than private insurance. It covers long-term care. You know, when our private, the private insurance I have and the private insurance you have doesn't cover long-term care. You have to buy that as separate insurance. It's not part of what your that one card will will give you access to. So, so um, you know, there's always gonna be some differences. <clears throat> there, there could be situations where um, a Medi-Cal plan has not reached an agreement with a particular set of providers or a particular hospital, but they still have to have the same, you know, a robust network. So I'll have a different hospital and a different set of providers. And so, you know. We also have to make sure that the the services we get are culturally competent. So we have a set of cultural competency, you know, um, policies and rules that even the private sector doesn't have to try to make sure that that people have access to the service they need in their language. And if they can't, refer them to somebody that does or provide them language services. Those are things that don't even exist necessarily in the private sector that exist in the public sector. Because we do have lots of unique things. Um, you know, the the sickest. The, the sickest children in society that have lots of genetic complications and all kinds of other kinds of things come to the state. And so they're kind of in a different, we have a different kind of network for them that is most like children's hospitals, lots of specialists. So it kind of depends on where you are accessing the kind of services you're accessing in the system. But, but obviously, you know, the, the major goal, and whether it's, per, whether it's private sector or public sector, is to provide the, the correct services in the correct place at the correct time or the right services in the right place at the right time. And that should be that's an overall societal goal, whether you're in the private sector um, or the public sector. You know, we have lots of, you know, the state does scorecards on on, on private insurers. And Medi-Cal does its own scorecards just for, for Medi-Cal. And we try to make sure that if things are different in one system or the other, that we're that we're pushing the plans to get to that. You know, what are you doing? in the private sector or for private, you're not doing in Medicare. We want to know about that because why are, you know, why is there a 85% immunization rate? And this, I'm just making this up. This is not a real thing, but you know, why would the immunization rate be higher here than here? Or why is it higher? You know, why, why in the same community is health plan A doing better than health plan B? So it's really not even about, not even always about even the systems. It's, it's about, you know, one insurer versus the other, or, Private sector versus public sector. It's, not, it's even health plans themselves. Health insurers are doing different things to get people in and keep them in, or motivate them, or you know uh, whatever they're doing to keep people's diabetes in control. Under health plan A, might be a lot better than health plan B. So it's also about best practices and learning from each other, so that, that our whole system rises at the same time.
1: What I love about it, how you operate and think through these challenges is uh, there's Uh, You can realize the complexities behind it, and there's not necessarily direct trade-offs, right? It's not yes or no type of responses. It's all this gray area that comes in between. You talked about a little bit about the social determinants of health. You know, that's a highly technical type of term, but gets into you know where you live and types of things you have access to. Um, I'm realizing there's some paradoxes that are starting to merge, including a paradox perhaps uh, that is between health and wealth. And I know that you're doing some cool things when you're thinking about you know generational wealth and how that ties to healthcare systems. You know how do you think about all those things tying in together?
2: Yeah I mean that is the so, I mean income and in lack thereof is one of the social terms of health so income inequality, housing inequality, food insufficiency. Um, and so you know we have to continue to strive to do what we can on that. On that part to raise up again it is more about your zip code than your genetic code and you have higher income zip codes that have a longer life you know longer lifespan than lower income zip codes and trying to figure out you know what can we do on that side and so people are trying to things, you know things like you know guaranteed basic income for example you know um people are trying to make sure that that we're doing a better job of making sure people know what um, whether whether it's on the food bank side or um, CalFresh, which we used to call food stamps, um, that people know, you know what's available to them. We are doing ACEs screening, which stands for adverse childhood experiences. We're now doing ACEs screening in in the Medi-Cal program, in, pedi- in pediatricians' offices now for adults, and so now we now we're also requiring it in private insurance as well, because <clears throat> we know from experience, the higher an ACEs score is, the more adverse childhood experiences a child has had. Um, the less likely its they're going to be on a very good health trajectory in their life. So you, you have people that are maybe 35 on the outside, but 55 on the inside because of all those pressures and stresses they've had, even as a young child, it has affected them physiologically. And again, I'm not going to get into studies about, you know, I, I'll just throw out the word cortisol, which is something that that is, is produced in your body. But if you're subject to lots of stresses in your life or the young child, It continues the cortisol production which usually um manifests itself during periods of high stress never turns off and just keeps producing and producing and producing and starts wearing down the insides of your body over time and so just things like that there are stress we're learning about you know the 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 physiological impacts of the environment you grew up in and it's long-term effects on your physiology and then your lifespan so so you know learning about ACEs, learning about the social determinants of health are helping us try to design programs and pathways for people to reduce their stresses. You know, we're, we're putting billions of dollars into um, child behavioral health. So if we can catch it early, if we can identify through ACEs and other screening early, <clears throat> it has such a, a huge emotional or social emotional positive impact on your ability to succeed in school. We know if you succeed in school, you're going to have a much better you know, time of, of either going to college or, or expanding your job opportunities. So again, looking at, we're now looking at a very young age on those, you know, what we can do on the health side to positive impact, the longer term trajectory of a person's life, um, as well as trying to figure out what we, what we can do on the social inequality scale to, 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 um, you know, tide raises all boats. Right. And so we're, you know, we have to look at the things we can do on the social inequality scale. To impact communities to give them a better shot.
0: Um, I've got a question for you. It's kind of, it's gonna, we're gonna keep going down this healthcare road here. Um, Rick, how did COVID 19 affect the delivery of medical services? And do you think that those changes are going to affect uh, future programs and how you approach uh, providing medical yeah, care in so, the community? So, overall, Overall, the life
2: expectancy in the United States has gone down the last couple of years because of COVID. I mean, we've declined like a year or two in life expectancy. Most of the rest of the most of the rest of the world, even with COVID, didn't happen. Happened here, um, and even more even more dramatically among communities of color, African American, Latino, primarily. What COVID did is amplify lots of the long seated things we kind of always knew about. But that resulted in like really negative health outcomes, and so you know, if all of a sudden you couldn't go to the doctor because things were closed, um, you know, you'd have more people that were suffering from diabetes and and hypertension and mental illness and and things like that. Um, if you already had these underlying health disparities, which exist more in some communities than others, COVID was more likely to put you in the hospital, and more likely to kill you. So. <clears throat> so that's one of the reasons why you know we already had these underlying health disparities for a whole variety of reasons, a whole variety of societal reasons, and lack of access to health coverage and things like that. When COVID came, it then disproportionately impacted those same communities because they had underlying health conditions. Also, for reasons that you know, um, you know, people um, couldn't afford to take off work even when they were sick, for example, because they couldn't afford it. So they go to work sick. They got sicker and ended up in the hospital and some dying or just, you know, more and more people had COVID because they couldn't they couldn't be six feet away. They were working in jobs that didn't allow for social distancing. And when they did get sick, they still went to work and infected us. I mean, there's lots of, re- and when they got home, it couldn't be like they're in a separate room somewhere. They had to take care of kids or they're taking care of grandkids. I mean, so there's lots of issues around. How COVID spread and how and how debilitating and devastating it was in certain communities for a whole lot of reasons and so again you did see the our, our overall us um, uh, you know our, our how long we were living our longevity rates have gone down um, we'll see what that looks like you know over the longer term it went down for two years in a row what how it impacted health coverage <clears throat> um, and what we will see over the most over the long term is that in California, at least in the public sector, we've been very reluctant. We have been pretty reluctant adopters of telehealth um, and other virtual technologies. <clears throat> um, um, and what it forced us to, is to go cold turkey right away into almost 100% telehealth. The whole country had to do it, private sector and public sector and develop new ways of thinking about okay how are we going to pay for this and what do we pay for and you know how do we do not only just you know not only just um, um how we pay for physician uh, patient interactions but how do we pay for physician specialty interaction when you know teleconsulting and things like that and and you know now we you know 24 hour hotlines for people that call in and have to worry about languages and so one of the biggest takeaways is, you know, the, the very rapid adoption and now permanent adoption in, in Medi-Cal and the private sector around telehealth and the opportunities for, te- now we know, <clears throat> for example, it's not a panacea, you know, you still need to be able to go in and we will still require people to, you know, have a primary care physician. And if you want to establish a new in Medi-Cal, for example, if you want to establish a new patient with your clinic, you still got to see them mano a mano, you still have to touch them, you still have to lay their hands on them and see them, you know, eyeball the eyeball, because you want to establish some kind of patient relationship, some things you can't, you can't describe, you can't, you know, just you have to feel and touch the person to see if something's wrong. So, so but at the same time, we're adopting lots more modalities around telehealth and making that kind of a permanent part of, of the system. And it turned out for a lot of people, you know they got used to it that was a much better way they could reach someone in language and right away much quicker than having to wait longer and have to wait for translate I mean it's just it's just different um, um, than it was before I think we also had to relearn how to do like mass public health events mass vaccination clinics trying to figure out how to communicate with people um, and reduce their fears to come in for a certain visit, or come and get a vaccine, or come and do this, or come and. Do this. So we had to like relearn some of our um, traditional public health activities that you know we hadn't had to do since the polio vaccine with you know Jonas Salk. And you, I think Martin, you were too old by then. But when I was a kid, and <clears throat> I'm older than you too, I think Paul. But when I was a kid, um, we used to line up for sugar cubes and it was not even a it wasn't even i mean it wasn't even no, no one questioned it you know it wasn't like now you have lots of vaccine hesitant vaccine skeptic people i mean polio was a really devastating disease and you know god forbid now we're seeing it back on the east coast again a little bit and that's just a horrible debilitating disease very very contagious everybody lined up their kids and you, you went for like three times and you got the polio vaccine in a sugar cube and you took the sugar cube you know to help the kids you know, people are scared of shots, scared of shots, but they put in a sugar cube, you get a sugar cube. Um, we had to learn how to do, you know, do those, you know, do those kinds of 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 um, of things again, which we hadn't had to do since the late '50s, early '60s. And of course, you know, my my grandparents and and you know would talk about the Spanish flu, which is 1919, um, because their parents were talking about. They they may have been very little or maybe not even alive, but their parents would tell them. And so that got passed on to at least my generation. That generation is now gone. And so, you know, the Spanish flu is not is a distant memory for very, very few people in the United States right now. But I remember from my grandparents talking about. So again, we I think the biggest change is really around um, really around telehealth. And and you know, we had to learn and, and make even do grants and things like to bring up the bring the health community up to speed. You know, we for a while, for a couple of years, we were waving the state laws around <clears throat> so the inadvertent release of medical information, because people were doing Zoom. They didn't have, they didn't have, they didn't even have um, things that were like um, super, um, super protective people's medical information, you know, um, because everybody's having to do Zoom and okay, well, if someone walks behind you when you're doing Zoom and someone's talking to you, you're gonna hear, that's an inadvertent release of medical information. And so we had to waive a bunch of the rules because people were in these environments they weren't really used to, or next to each other, or didn't have ways to make their 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 um, conversations more private, or even transmit medical information very easily um, through electronic means. So we've we've had to adapt a bunch, and things are, have gotten a lot better. But that will be a permanent fixture, I would say now, of our medical system um, is 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 telehealth and telecommunications, and the greater we had to speed up our medical record transmission capabilities <clears throat> but what has come out of it what also has come out of it is 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 the need for better data transmission when imperial county when imperial county which was the bellwether right that's a place where hospitalizations really kicked up heavily latino you know people really couldn't be socially distant lots of underlying medical conditions that was the bellwether we were learning from that the hospitals that were overwhelmed We were transporting people, and we were trying to stay. It was like the New York situation, right? We're like, oh my goodness. We were having to transport people from Imperial County into San Diego and further places north. We learned very quickly the medical records weren't going with them because the hospitals in Imperial County couldn't talk to the hospital in County or couldn't. We were transporting people up in the north. So from that whole effort came a new health data exchange effort, which coming within the next two or one or two years. All the big entities are going to have to be able to transmit data to each other using a standardized format where we talk again that is going to be a permanent part of our ongoing health infrastructure now but we learned from how we could how we could communicate and not communicate uh, both through the data and just the, the the interaction between provider and patient so those are two things i think we really learned a lot about as well as as well as reminding us hey these health disparities are here and when you have a pandemic come along it really and and you know health inequities health disparities are really amplified by we're amplified by the pandemic and hopefully we learned a lot more about how to more quickly get vaccine and information and dollars to communities than we did before um as a, as a result of all of this but but again I don't you know we don't know what's coming next but we certainly have had some takeaways from this past, and again, we're not even out of it. So we haven't even learned all we're going to learn. And as you know, and you know, Paul will probably be teaching this in three years. What do we learn from the pandemic, <clears> or <throat> pandemic and public policy? I don't know what books Paul or others are going to write or get involved with. But but again, you know, books and seminars and papers and movies and everything else is going to come out of come out of all this.
0: Well, let me ask you a couple other. Final questions, um, because I don't want to. There's there's a million questions that I know Paul's got a bunch of questions as well. So and, unfortunately, uh, Paul, I do go on. I do go on. So I apologize. No, I I, I, I actually find the conversation very, um, you know, fascinating and very very informative. When, Paul, so,
2: Paul to your earlier point, there was no lack of conversation in the Figueroa household. <laughs> and when we get together, if people don't know us, it's like, well, you know, be you know, Martin, Luther, be prepared. Yeah, everybody, so, every, everybody likes to talk and and because of nine kids you end up over time the tones keep getting higher and higher. The people are trying to talk over each other and always and so we're still very much when we get together still very much like that. It's very, it's a very rambunctious crew.
0: So let me, me a ask
1: you skill this, to have in the governor's office.
0: <laughs> so let me ask you this uh, Rick. Um in terms of people always have questions around I have a couple of questions. I don't know if you want to write this down here. Um, for the part one would be. Oh my part, gosh! I know, I know. Part one would be um, if you can explain, in some ways, the high cost of prescription medication and why they continue to be high, like some of the trends that you think. I, I think you've spoken about this in the past with me. Um, and then, and then the other part of that, like how do you handle that as a state, right? And sure. I know that. And then there, the second, there,
2: the answer is very easy. They're high because we allow
0: them to be high.
2: Well, that yeah and I, I want because you, we allow them to be behind. right
0: and I want you to speak about like touch on that a little bit and then the other the second part of that is um, there's there's caps on our on HMOs PPOs they have caps if you have serious illnesses right especially as you get older um, right. those when those caps run out, I know that there's there's other funding sources that kick in. And then when those funding sources uh, run out for the like HMO or or even Medicare, or MediCal, and I, yeah, I know we use those terms interchangeably in, during the podcast, does the state go after someone's personal assets to pay for that? And I know that you we, you and I have had this discussion in the past. Yeah. There's some real changes in the okay. next co- couple of years that are very very critical. I think are really important to bring up during in the podcast.
2: Yeah, so we, on on the prescription drugs, I mean, um, you know, they're high because we allow them to be high. Um, You know, there's an imbalance in market power um, between pharmaceutical companies and and purchasers, insurers, large employers and government are all frustrated about it. Uh, It wasn't until this most recent um, Federal legislation that Medicare can even negotiate prices, and they're the largest payer in the country. So that's a, so so. You know, you know we get we, we've allowed this to occur um, when other countries have not allowed it to occur. Now, it's also true we have lots of medical innovation, lots of pharmaceutical innovation here, but so do other countries, and they still don't pay as much as we do. And certainly, certainly the cost of that research and development is amortized. In the in the price of every pill that you take so it's not the actual ingredient cost you're also paying for marketing and r d and investments and 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 profits and you know things like that so but again you know we don't we don't drive and haven't been able to drive as hard a bargain as we probably could um and even even in the generic market a lot of the generic market is is high so Um, again, the federal government is finally, finally, um, you know, going to be negotiating for Medicare stuff and, and hopefully, but again, what's hard about it is it's you're negotiating over how much you pay when a lot of the problems are, are in the initial setting of the price, right? So, so insulin's a good example, you know, might be 300 a vial when maybe you it's actually the cost is 30. Um, and so that's, that's just, it's just, um, a market failure and, and no one has kind of stepped into that market and, and tried to take on the current, um, complex and interact in, in very complicated interactions between the manufacturers, wholesalers, distributors. It's very complicated system that we have here of getting a pill from the, manufacturing plant into someone's body so the governor for example the legislature and the governor agreed that we're going to put 100 million dollars into insulin this year and 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 put something on the street that says hey we'll contribute up to 50 million dollars to help develop three generic insulins that we can sell at cost so it wouldn't be the whole system right now where we have a price of you know three hundred dollars and then We have rebates and there's this and this and this and this. We're trying to get to the we're trying to break the wheel, get to the underlying cost and sell it at that cost. Versus the current system, we have a really jacked up prices with rebates and you know uh, assistance programs and this and that and this and that. So that's just an example. And so there are there are new market entrants that are coming into this space um, that are trying to sell things that cost and break the wheel because the current system we have is just so darn expensive. And again, you know, we've allowed it through, through the way of our patent system and the way that we allow extensions of patents And people have abused the patent system and, you know, various things. But again, we, we are learning the hard way and, and trying to pick up on what other countries have done as well as, as the state is trying as a social good, trying to spend some of its own money to kind of help break the wheel a little bit, at least on insulin, if not others, who knows what's gonna come down the road. Um, and make a social investment so that we can bring the cost down not just for the state but for everybody for uninsured people for the private sector i mean we don't care who would buy it we want to make it available cheaper for everybody because it's 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 a you know it's something that's necessary to keep people alive and it's it's costing way too much so so that's kind of one piece of how this you know how we're trying to to make some changes um you know obamacare and you know you Know we hear a lot we hear less and less about oh Obamacare is a horrible thing um, these days and than they used to, but Obamacare or Affordable Care Act got rid of got rid of annual uh, annual maximums and lifetime maximums for coverage. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean you still don't have copays and deductibles and things like that. <clears throat> but they did get rid of of of, um, of annual maximums and lifetime maximums. It doesn't mean that um, now people, have, you know, still go bankrupt because of medical costs because of deductibles and co-payments and co-insurance. So it doesn't mean that people still don't have there's a, a large component of, of medical costs that lead into bankruptcies in this country. Um, but that there is a cap, you know, like you have said on there. Now, you know, we're, there was people, you know, insurers others were moving around it by doing things like. What they call surprise billing, out of network, a lot of these things don't apply to out of network benefits. And so the state of federal have had to step in where there are these um where issues have arisen about people still going bankrupt because of medical circumstances by stepping in for what they call the No Surprises Act or making sure that you know if you're if you're if you get in an auto accident and you go to have to go to the hospital. You don't have a choice about what hospitals you're going to if you're unconscious. You have no choice over who's seeing you. So, you know, every hospital has to take you in for emergency care, but 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 certain providers, if they were out of network, if they were seeing you and you were on the operating table and you were some specialist or something and were out of network, <clears throat> they were charging you balance billing you beyond whatever the insurer would pay to what their actual costs are. That's called balanced billing. So people are going, you know, even though there's a a cap on their annual expenditures, I mean, there's no more cap on what an insurance company had to pay, there were still no caps on out-of-pocket in some cases when it was out-of-network. So again, government has had to step in to those situations where, where there are these imbalances in power between patients and providers or the way that they interact with the healthcare delivery system. And so we had to step in where necessary. And we, and no doubt we will continue to step in, you know, as if there are these major issues that that happen. But again, you know, Medi-Cal is free, for example, in your example, Martin, there is no, it's just free. There's no out-of-pocket, no maximum, it's just free. Medicare, just recently, again, with the most recent uh, Inflation Reduction Act or whatever its acronym is these days, um, put some new limitations on how much out-of-pocket was going to be. For seniors for the first time. But again, we can change these things and hopefully we'll see a lot less bankruptcies associated with, with the medical system than we've had in the past. But it's taken us a long time to get here. And unfortunately, you know, even with co-pays and deductibles, they can still pe- put people in very difficult situations, particularly for multiple people in a family, um, such that it leads to medical bankruptcy or all kinds of other hardships or you know, cutting their pills in half because they can't For the next copay, you know, but again, that's a lot of it's related to what's being charged for a drug, which is the actual underlying cost. And so, until we get to the actual underlying cost and are getting, are are making it available at closer to what the underlying cost is versus what the price is, which is jacked up for all kinds of reasons, you're still going to see people in in pretty dire, in a a lot of cases, pretty dire straits about the particular medicine they have to take, putting them in a very, you know, difficult financial position.
1: Yeah, there's so many questions that are surfacing around health policy and health economics. Well, Martin asked education. Martin asked a two part question, so you got
2: a two part answer. So
1: I know uh, but it's really just opening the door for all these really enriching things that make the whole system work. Um, we're gonna hold off and maybe pull you back for another podcast. But want to get your insights if you can pull out that crystal ball. What's the future of health policy?
2: Boy, well. Um, I'm hoping it's a lot, more about, a lot less about health coverage because for a long time people were focused on getting people covered with Obamacare and continued Medicaid expansions and things like that. Hopefully it's a lot less about getting people covered and a lot more about how to drive value once they're in um, and incentivize value once they're in because once you get people in, you still have to retain them it still has to be affordable, whether it be for government, the employer, the people are buying individual coverage. So it moves from accessibility to affordability. And hopefully we've done more and more on the accessibility side over time. And now we have to continue to figure out what to do more about the affordability side of the equation, which, which is you know, in many parts driven by um, um, you know, kind of the healthcare inflation trajectory. <clears throat> so you've seen more and more states, including California, just this past year. We have a new Office of Healthcare Affordability that's going to be putting in certain measurements and targets for healthcare expenditures, first overall, and then by health industry sector by 2028, I think it is. Um, now we're like the sixth or seventh state that is doing this. So it's, it's over time, we're getting more and more into how the systems can, can incentivize value um, and, and behavioral health and preventive care. Um, to, so to hopefully level, we're never going to, it's hard to actually drive healthcare costs down. We're all getting older. We always expect more medical technology. We want to live forever. I mean, there's all these things that, you know, we have more and more, you know, people that have diabetes and heart disease and all kinds of things. So, so it's, it's not realistic to think healthcare costs are necessarily going like to go on, a, you know, an ongoing downward trajectory, but certainly you want to, you want them to keep up with regular inflation and not outpace you know regular inflation so that so that as long as we have an employer-based system and the kind of hodgepodge system we have right now we can maximize the amount of people that are in care or in coverage so you don't have people uninsured like martin has indicated that you know go bankrupt or go without or going to die a premature death because they didn't have access to a or b or c so so um i think over the long term it is going to be about you know affordability and to an earlier point you brought up paul a better understanding and how we incorporate the things we've learned about what impact your health. It's not just the clinical delivery system. It's how all these other systems impact a person's health and wellness that then drive the costs up over time. So it's about the social determinants of health and how we develop models and delivery systems that that reflect a, bo- a broader understanding of healthcare and the health of, of a community. So it is about, you know, it's about affordability, and and those things that that impact us over the long term. And again, hopefully, less about you know how you know an uninsurance rate of twenty percent, and how we fund that, and more about you know once you're in, how we how we take care of you when you're in, how we recognize what's affecting you, and how we affect the long-term trajectory of the system.
1: You know, the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast is all about celebrating really cool people doing really cool things. Uh, Richard, I want to ask a couple of rapid fire questions at you. Are you ready? Oh boy. Okay. One word responses are shorter. Here we go. Uh, what book is on your nightstand right now?
2: The report of voter registration for June of, of 2022. I just got it today. I can't wait. I like, I I'm kind of a data nerd on the voter registering and how, how, how it impacts different districts and things like that. And so I just, I picked that up today and that's something we're looking at this evening. It's not, it's not not what you'd expect, but that's what I
1: have here. That's what you have. Uh, if you're a baseball player, what would be your walk-up song? Oh my god. Um,
2: titanium. I don't know. Favorite place to visit? Uh, I'd say Disneyland. Because you can just get away from everything. Most unusual talent. I don't know. I don't know that I have an unusual talent. I, I don't know. Martin, I don't know that I have an unusual talent. I wish I I wish I thought. I mean, I remember lots of my grammar school and high school kids' phone friends' phone numbers. I have a pretty good memory,
1: but it's like that's not that unusual. I think it's very unusual this day and age. Best piece of advice that you've received that's worth sharing. Um I, I would say, um,
2: you know, don't don't make enemies unless you have to. I mean, people are kind of, pretty. You know, a lot of people are kind of nasty to each other in, in different in different in different forms. And um, I think just, you know, treating people as human beings and not just you know solely based on the politics they bring to the table is always something that has that has you know served me well. So again, we you 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 agree? It's 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 business. It's not personal. It's just business.
1: Richard, i filled up a legal pad with notes. Appreciate you spending part of your time with us, part of your day with us. Uh, thanks for doing all the work that you're doing and keeping us all nice and safe and healthy.
2: It's, it's never a dull moment in state government, I'll tell you. No dull moments, no dull moments. I got to say go Bruins too. Sorry, sorry, sorry you Trojan people, I got to say go Bruins. I want, I want my powder blue for the occasion.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Paul and Richard, uh, just great to have you on. I'm so lucky to have you <clears> as <throat> as friends and people. I really look up to and I appreciate both of you so much. And if you like the podcast, give it a thumbs up and can't wait to have our next guest on. And in the meantime, keep learning and growing and until next time. My pleasure.